tonight we'll continue the uh, discussion about uh, time and um, tonight I want to talk about a particularly um, endearing part of that uh, time sequence and uh, that's about death and uh, tonight I, I call this um, uh, death the ending of time often uh, reflect on some of the hard topics that we uh, that we choose to investigate and, and really explore in Dharma practice and this is certainly one of them I uh, sent my manuscript of my book off uh, to uh, to an editor actually to a, an agent and uh, she couldn't take the project on because she had too many things on her plate but she thought uh, she said you know I really appreciated your book on death and dying she said but uh, um, the subject she said I just uh, I found myself wanting to avoid it. So uh, I think that's how most of us think about that. But tonight I'd like to think about death in a different kind of way. Sort of fold in the topic of physical death. But really to think about death in the terms of the ending of time. It makes an enormous difference, or it should, to all of us, that time ends. Because if time didn't end, we would have a real problem. And in fact, if time didn't end, it certainly would make a lot more sense to be greedy. Because what would it be about except accumulating and just keep on amassing things, right? And we just do that forever. And the one that has the biggest pile, Bill Gates, <laughs> has uh, <laughs> is the bumper sticker, the one who has the most toys wins. But the fact that time ends it all of a sudden turns the checker game into a chess game on the same board but with completely different re, uh, rules and pieces. Completely different strategies. Because it turns the whole thing around on us. It upsets the apple cart. And most of us, or many of us, um, have uh, lived a lifetime in which we have pretended that time doesn't end. And therefore we play checkers in the middle of the chess game. And it's not working. And that's where most of us find ourselves. It doesn't seem, I mean, we're, everybody seems to be playing checkers with us. 
but the rules just seem to be different if we're going to make this thing work. And death makes it work. Death makes the rules come back into a way that uh, allows us to re-experience life in a different way. Uh, you know, um, one of the things I think I've appreciated about being around hospice work for so long is that every day we come into work and on the board are written the names of the um, 130 patients that we serve. And every patient on that board has a, a name, of course, and an age and a description. And it's not very often that you don't find your own scenario somewhere on that board. You know, 48-year-old, whatever. And the psychological distance between the healthy, what we claim we are, and those who happen to find their names on the board begins to change, begins to narrow. The gap narrows. And we begin to think of ourselves in transition to that board, in transition to the ending of time, in transition from playing checkers to chess. It's interesting uh, that everybody sort of intuitively senses something about death as being, uh, no matter what your um, ideology is. In, in uh, Texas, uh, I was um, uh, the executive director of a hospice program there, and we had a board of the local bankers and you know the movers and shakers of the community. And uh, being Central Texas, it was a very conservative, religious uh, and otherwise politically conservative board. And if I had ever talked to them about Buddhism, they would have fired me, probably on the spot. But if we could gather around this table and talk about death and dying, which is what everybody had come to talk about. I could say the, exactly the same things as I would say in a Dharma talk, and everybody's eyes would light up with interest. And they would move into that subject with a real sense of it being important. And it's so... But Dharma, Dharma death is what Dharma is really all about. And somehow we get fascinated or caught or stuck on the descriptive ways we talk about death, the Buddhist ways, the Christian ways, and the personalities who are the gateways to the deathless rather than what the real subject is, which is death itself. It's interesting to get old, isn't it? 
I'm finding it <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I mean, do you let yourself feel yourself getting old? It's very interesting. <laughs> the whole thing is interesting. Does it matter to you that you're getting old? You see? I, I, find it, I find it very interesting because when I was young, I never thought this would happen. <laughs> and inside, you know, it's, I still feel young. Like the consciousness in there still feels young. And it's just that the body doesn't work like it did. And to sit by, and, you, and the fruit like is getting, you know, getting ripe. <laughs> and, and it begins to spoil a little bit, right? It's just not quite as juicy as it used to be. And you know what's going to happen at some point? It's going to fall from the tree. And even though I've been practicing 20 years or more, more, and have been in hospice work a dozen of those years, death is not a comfortable subject for me. It's still, there's a gulp there. So what I've been trying to do is when I get sick, even with a cold like I have at the moment, I practice dying. I use, okay, this is it. Now, it's going to get a lot worse than this, right, when you die, when we die. So if I can't be with it now, <laughs> I'm going to have a hell of a time when it really happens. So you just begin to prepare yourself in some ways for this thing. But what we do, the mind can't stand the thought of its own demise. It, it just won't... It won't allow for that scenario. I worked with a 97-year-old woman dying of cancer. Nice woman. And when she started to actively die, it dawned on her what was happening to her 97-year-old body. And she said to me, as sincerely as a 8-year-old child would say, Rodney, why is this happening to me? 97 years old. <laughs> that fruit is rarely... <laughs> we don't want it to happen no matter how old we are. It's just we keep thinking 97, 107, 127, I mean, there's no end to it, right? Why is that happening to me? We give ourselves endless time because the mind is only made up of time. It can only think in terms of time. It can only think in terms of continuity. 
It can't even conceive the end. Can't even conceive the end. And I've watched number of people die in my life. Right on the, at the moment. And I, it doesn't stop, you see? I mean, my mind doesn't stop there. I think, oh, well, now it's good. The consciousness is going to go on and da, da, da. But what if it just stopped? What if time just ended? And that was it. You see, you can't. You can picture nothingness, right? But you can't. Because the time, the mind moves in time. If there's one thing that I would like us to get out of these four weeks together, is that the very fabric that we're made of is time. Thoughts, reflections, attitudes, beliefs, ideas, opinions, images, everything. Histories, our history, our future, everything is composed of time. The mind looks out on the world and just covers it with time. Everything we see is of time, we're of time. Everything has time at its base. And yet life is an immediate process. Living itself, the living experience of life, the living isness of life <clears throat> is not of time itself. And what we try to do in meditation is to connect the mind to that immediate moment. And we keep losing it, right? Why? Because the mind can't stay there. It fills itself with continuity, with projection of past, future, and ideas. It can't stay, it can't reside there. It requires a different level of our being to reside there. We make attempts at bringing the mind back, but it just flits off. It just, it won't stay because it's not composed of anything but time. I worked uh, with a couple who had um, lived together 60 years, man and wife. The husband was dying. And um, the husband had, um, the, it had always been a, a nice relationship, but uh, the husband hadn't shown a great deal of affection for his wife um, for probably 50 of those 60 years. It was only in the first few years that uh, she said that he had really been affectionate. And as he approached his death, the husband kept, would tell his wife to come over and sit down. We're going to spend time together. And he kept telling her, he started telling her how much he loved her. Uh, and his wife was just uh, ab absolutely um, amazed uh, that they could spend this kind of time together. And um, I said, what's different about, about you now? Uh, what's different about you now, John? 
And he says, you know, I have time to notice her now. They'd spent 60 years together and he hadn't had time to notice her. But now that he was dying, now that he knew that time ended, he had time to look around and to really notice her. I just want us to think a little bit about our own lives. I think we need to really look at what it is that life is about and keep coming back to that. Because I'm finding that unless the pattern has been set for us early on, it becomes increasingly difficult with age to move ourselves into any kind of level of contact with life. The conditioning gets stronger. We're more um, at the whim, our minds are more at the whim of our uh, previous years of, uh, of training, of habits. It's a time to really take stock of ourselves. Uh, one spiritual teacher said that he, um, he didn't think that somebody could really be sincerely spiritual until they were 40. Because at the age of 40, you actually began to see that uh, life wasn't endless. Before that, it's, uh, we, can, uh, we can get lost in it all. You know what's amazing to me, uh, because uh, I work uh, with staff who have years and years of experience of uh, working with the dying, that even people who are doing this business every single day when they come into work uh, can still get lost uh, when it happens to them. We, I had a, a friend, nurse friend, who developed a lump on her breast, hospice nurse. And she said, uh, when she found out she had this lump, she felt it. Uh, and before she got an x-ray, uh, her mind filled with the scenarios of death and dying. Oh my god, I'm, I'm dying of breast cancer. She went uh, clear through the entire scene of what would happen to her and uh, right to the hospice staff that she wanted to visit her uh, when she was terminally ill. And uh, all of the training that she had had in how to work with death and dying as a caregiver uh, was turned on its head and she was panicked and she was uh, anxious, nervous, and she said that what she thought she had learned, she hadn't learned at all. She thought she had become very comfortable with the idea of death, and she had with the idea of death. And the idea of death is 
an idea in time. It's not an idea of any reality. And it's only when reality bites a little bit that our real experience and training clicks in. Krishnamurti used to say, he um, attended a lecture by him one time, and he said, uh, do you want to know what it's like to die? And the audience was, uh, you could hear a pin drop. Everybody wanted to know what he was going to say. He says, think of the thing you love the most and drop it. That's death. Think of the thing you love the most and drop it. You want to know what it's like to die. How hard or how easy is it for us to give up a single thing, a single notion, a single idea, a single sunset, a single fa a favorite dish, an idea of ourselves and what we would like to be. Oh, you know, if I were only married, if I were only with somebody, if I were only this, if I only had a house, if I only had a job. To be able to drop a single idea and to die to a single idea is the experience of time ending. It's the experience of real time ending, of real dharma. But to play with the idea of death as a as an idea, and then we fill it in all in, you know. Well, I'm going to die, sure, but then a good Buddhist, the consciousness will move out. You know, we fill it, right? We fill it with more time. And we even train ourselves on what to do at time of death. You breathe through the top of your head and you just keep going, right? <laughs> right? So we got this whole thing plotted out. It has nothing to do with time ending. It's time continuing. And we do it. This is Dharma teaching. We go to the lamas, the ones that really know about death and dying, like anybody knows about death and dying. <laughs> we go to the ones who are alive. <laughs> and they tell, you know, they tell us what, they, what we want to hear about how to evolve our consciousnesses, right? And yet Dharma practice is about time ending. Dharma practice is about chess, not about checkers. It's about a whole different relationship to things. Vertical, not horizontal. Vertical. New dimension. It said that if you were a one-dimensional creature, you couldn't conceive of two dimensions. We're three dimensions, and we can't conceive of a fourth dimension where there's nothing, where time ends. So we fill our lives with um, ways to perpetuate time. And then we frolic in a universe that's imaginary with our fears and with our desires 
with our ideas and with our images. We fill our whole world with that. And we wonder why they're talking about an illusion, the illusion of life. Because it's all just, it's just all mental play. Time is just mental play. It's just the stuff of dreams. I worked with a man who had lung cancer. And it's um, not uncommon for people who are at the end of their life to hold on rather fervently to their religion as an anchor, as a way to take them through this thing as a steadying post. Well, this man uh, did what we call in the business, uh, he was dysfunctionally, the uh, he had dysfunctional theology. That is, he used his theology to take him away from his own humanness. He um, was terribly afraid of dying, panicked, full of fear. But he had read somewhere in his Bible or whatever he was reading that uh, a good Christian wouldn't allow himself to be afraid because uh, God will make it okay, you know, I don't know. And so he kept saying, I'm not, he would say, I'm not afraid of dying, he would say. That's dysfunctional theology. And let me tell you a secret. Some of the people I have seen die the worst are the ones that think they're the most conscious. Because they too practice dysfunctional theology. They think they should be serene when their minds are screaming. What do we think that a time machine will do when it comes to the ending of time? It will scream. The mind, by its very nature, is a time machine. It creates time. It cannot stand the thought of a vacuum. So death causes us to scream. And if we don't allow those screams to occur in a very human way, we find ourselves battling against our own humanness, against our own organic nature. And this particular man was doing just that. And the fact that he had lung cancer, he kept saying, it's God's will that I'm dying, isn't it? Isn't it God's will that I'm dying? Yes, in a very, very um, sympathetic way. You know, I said to him, um, it is God's will that you're dying, but it's also God's will that you're still alive. I said, why don't you just rest with your breath, which was the source of his anxiety because he was losing his breath. He had shortness of breath in his lung cancer. I said, why don't you rest with the assurance that you're still alive because you're still breathing and that it's God's will that you are still alive. And just rest with that. And let your breath reassure you rather than panic you 
that it's God's will is being done. And what it did was it took him away from the conceptual thinking of time into the experience of being alive. Allowed him to move away from the fabrications of a mind that is going to end and panics at that thought into the assurance of the experience itself, which is beyond time. Into the aliveness itself, which is a different dimension. And we fill our day with the fabrications of our imagination. Because it's never what is actually happening that we are afraid of or that we desire, but always what we don't have or what's going to happen. I develop a lump on my breast. I'm not afraid of the lump. I'm afraid of having cancer. I don't know whether I have cancer, but I'm afraid that I might have cancer. Then I get x-rayed and find out that I have cancer. I'm not afraid anymore of having cancer. I'm afraid of having a mastectomy or the cancer being untreatable. And then I find out it's untreatable. I'm not afraid of it being untreatable. I'm afraid of dying. And then I actually die. And I'm not afraid of dying at that moment, but because I have no future to project to. You see, dying backs us up to the ending of itself. And that's the way it is. I don't desire what is actually here. I desire what I want to happen. Right? You have the ice cream cone. You're not desiring it. You have it. You take a lick. It satisfies you for a while. And then you desire another lick. You don't desire the lick when you're having the lick. It's always the next thing which isn't occurring. And so the fabrication of time is built in to the very network, the way we think about ourselves, the way we fear, the way we desire, the way we live. And when we start thinking and lose ourselves in that, then time holds us to the consequences. And consequences only exist in time. They don't exist in the actual moment of things as they occur. There are no consequences. It's just living. You know, um, there's a... I'm trying to um, keep this thing be from becoming too abstract. And um, the, I think the, uh, there's a delicate balance between um, going too far out there 
with this subject and losing uh, your interest or your your attention and trying to make it relevant enough to our lives so that uh, we can continue to look at this subject with some degree of seriousness. There is a, um, a process that most people who are dying go through and it's called life review. And uh, what happens during life review is that because somebody knows they're dying, they start trying to settle uh, their whole history of uh, incomplete relationships and uh, all the uh, incomplete parts of themselves, the whole history of, uh, of guilt and shame, remorse, it all comes up because it's a little bit like death squeezes that out from you, makes it, brings it to the surface. Uh, because in the ending of time, time which we have suppressed or repressed within ourselves comes out. Like I was with one person who had been an alcoholic his whole life and had um, abused his family from his alcoholism. So what happened when he was dying is that he, in his sort of uh, haze, um, would have dreams of an alcoholic coming into his rooms, hallucinations of people who were drunk coming into his room and threatening him and, and uh, with all kinds of things. You see? You see how it works? Is that the very things, the very ways that we have been in our lives, we have to heal to all this. We have to heal to time is what this life review is really all about. We have to heal to this process that we have uh, that we have created. We have to heal to ourselves. And that's the realm of therapy, of psychology, is for us to heal in relationship to all of these. <coughs> but the ultimate form of healing is really ending is really letting go, is really letting be. And we have to be very careful during this process of life review that people, that they just don't create new images of themselves, that it doesn't just move itself time creating time, creating time, creating time. That it really hit ends itself, that it heals itself in an ending, not in a perpetuation, not in a continuance. Because death, I have a feeling, there must be a moment there. As a matter of fact, I felt that moment once. I was uh, in a meditation retreat doing a prolonged period of practice and during one of my morning sittings, um, I remember uh, having a heart attack. But it was the image of myself having a heart attack, although I had all the experiences of myself actually having a heart attack. At the same time, I knew it wasn't me that was having a heart attack. And uh, I felt uh, my heart 
just an enormous pain in my chest um, and radiating down my arm and uh, just kind of a crushing feeling uh, and I knew I was dying and uh, I was trying to breathe and it was breath was becoming labored and then it got to be so painful it just I died and uh, I knew that I had died and the first thought I had after I died was, my God, I wasn't aware. I wasn't present for it. There had been so much fear in relationship to the pain and so much struggle to maintain the continuity, see, to maintain the aliveness. And so little willingness to surrender and to let go into the process that it was survival at any cost it's almost a part of the cells itself. I think it is cellular. To, to want to remain alive. That it just, it blanketed, there was no awareness of the process. And that was in the middle of a meditation. You see? The irony of that. Now we go to when it really happens to us. You know, at 2 o'clock in the morning or in the middle of a work, something or other, or while we're out jogging or something, when we're not prepared for it, when we don't have all of the details worked out. I think the process is, uh, I think it's uh, an ominous one. It will call upon all the reserves that we can bring. It will call upon all the strength of all the moments that we have been sitting together like this to allow us to maximize potential of that moment. And yet the beauty of that moment is rests in the degree of fear that the moment also offers. Because the greatest growth, the potential for the greatest growth occurs when there's the greatest fear. And so the dying moment, because it is such a crucial event in terms of our fear, also has the greatest, is the greatest strategy for true understanding and freedom. And yet that moment is not some abstraction. Physical death may not be something that follows us imminently day after day. But as Krishnamurti said, do you want to know what it's like to die? Practice letting go. Practice not moving in relationship to a loss, to a desire, to a fear, to a grief, to unhappiness, to sadness, to your depression, to your anger. To let be means to let be, to leave alone. It doesn't mean to try to reconfigure, to distort, or to change into something else. 
It doesn't mean to transmute. It means to let be. To let go. And to really die. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.